Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I will hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman for the morning. Yes, more than a watchman for the morning. Well, good morning, church. I love these words from the psalmist. We have a God who is merciful, and we have a God who forgives. The psalmist says, I will wait for him, and in his word, I will hope. So we come to the end of one week, the beginning of another. I wonder if you would say that you have come into this Lord's day waiting on the Lord and with hope that is fixed in him. It's my prayer each week that as we gather together, whether in person or through this means, that God would use our time together to remind us of our need to wait for him and to hope in his word. Our tendency is to trust in ourselves and to trust in what we believe to be true, but we need these weekly reminders, don't we? As we come together, a reminder to wait on the Lord and to hope in him. And so I hope that's helpful for you as as we turn soon to God's word. Hope you'll settle in and use this as a time uh, to wait and to listen. I know for me it is getting harder and harder. Now 10 weeks in to speak to an empty room into a camera and it's likely that you are finding it harder and harder as well to sit in front of a screen. Hopefully what we've been reminded of during this time is that what we do as the people of God is a lot more than content. Me making a video and you watching a video, this content exchange, there's more to it than that. It's the process of us hearing the word of God and and sharing it together. So it's getting harder, but I will tell you, we are, we are near the end, Lord willing. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I hope that on June 7th, we will have our first gathering together for any of you who are able to come. But in the time we have still, I, I trust that you will work hard to stay connected and to, to enter in to our time together, even this way. I do want to remind you that we are meeting at 1045 this morning, as we have been which is that time we can fellowship together, we can pray, and we can feel that fellowship, that connectedness that God has called us to have with one another. So I hope to see you at 1045. Um, Also remember to participate in your obedience of giving. You can do that online or through the mail. Well, as always, I want to take a few minutes to to pray with you, church, to pray for you and with you. Um, It's important that we pray together. I also hope this is a a time where you can just prepare your heart for the word that we are about to hear from Mark chapter 3. So I will invite you to, to join me in prayer. Lord, as we gather together this morning, another week has passed. Another week lies ahead. And this morning we come recognizing that we need you. We need you to help us consider the experiences of the past week and to guide us as we look forward to what is to come. God, this morning I do want to thank you for the provision for the week that has passed. We prayed together last week. We asked you for your provision. We asked you for your grace and your mercy. And here we are seven days later and you have been faithful. You have supplied our needs. You have strengthened us in weakness. You have shown grace and mercy for each new day. You've been faithful, but I think most of us would admit that we have not been completely faithful. This week, we have not done all the things that we should have done. And there are things that we have left undone that we should have done. We confess that we have sinned, and we know that we can only stand because of Christ and the forgiveness that's available to us through him. So thank you for Jesus. And now as we consider the week to come, We know that it's only by your grace that we will endure. So we ask again this week 
for your provision. We ask again for your strength. We ask for new mercies every day as you have promised to us. As we go into a new week, we do ask that you would equip us. Give us hearts that are fixed on you and on serving those around us. Would you stir in us to be more diligent in our prayers? Would you give us a desire for more time and communion with you? Would you fill us with a longing for your word and your promises? Would you give us clarity in regards to your will for us? Guard us from temptation. Would you make us ready to serve others? And above all, would you make us eager ambassadors of the gospel? Now this morning, I want to thank you for the gift of being joined not only to you, but to one another. We thank you for the fellowship and unity of the church. We ask that you would continue to strengthen us in love, both for you and for one another. Would you maintain our peace and make us a people who truly carry out the calling that you have set before us? We long to be pleasing to you. And Lord, we ask that you would use our time together this morning as we go to your word to accomplish your will in us. God, I confess that I am weak and my words are futile. But I believe that your words are life. And so we ask you to speak through me as I read and preach your word. God, make this time profitable for the good of your church. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, I hope that you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 3. We're going to return there. I hope you'll settle in, grab your Bible, print the notes. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. And this morning we come to a text that has troubled many people. It's a text that has been a source of debate among scholars and students of the Bible. And it's a text that has caused some people to despair to wonder if they really can be saved. If you've ever heard people talking about the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin, this is the place in the Bible where that conversation starts. If you have your Bibles open, you look at the heading. Probably says something like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe yours says the unpardonable sin. I've known people who because of this text have wondered if they have put themselves into a place where God will not or cannot save them. They fear that they've done something that has set them apart from God. They're concerned that they may have committed a sin that has robbed them of the hope of eternal life with God. It's a significant concern. So part of what we're going to do this morning is to answer the question, Is there such thing as an unforgivable sin? Is there a sin that God will not forgive? And if so, how can we know if we've committed that sin? Important questions. We're going to try to answer those this morning. But with that said, it can be very easy to come to this text and only answer those questions. As important as they are, that's not all that is in this text. It's true this passage contains a significant warning, but this passage also reveals some really significant things about Jesus. Things that should provide us not only with warning, but with comfort. That's why I titled the message the way I did. The danger of blasphemy and the comfort of faith. I'll tell you, as I I knew this passage was coming, I recognized that we have our work cut out for us. It's not an easy text to explain, and it's not an easy text to understand, but as happens so often, the more time I spent in this passage, and the more thankful I was for it, this is a passage of warning, but it's also a passage in which we see the unmatched strength of Jesus, and we have a reminder that he will be victorious over all his enemies. We also, in this passage, have assurance of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. So with that said, there's really three main things that I hope you'll you'll hear in this text this morning. 
you just want to think of three words as an outline in your mind, your three words are these. Strength, warning, forgiveness. That's our outline. The strength of Jesus, a warning from Jesus, and forgiveness through Jesus. So that's where we're headed. But one more thing before we read the text. I do want to remind you about what Mark is doing structurally in this part of Mark 3. And if you were with us last week, we we talked about this. As we come to this point, we have a story within a story. It's a, a literary device that Mark uses where he takes two stories that communicate common themes and he puts them together so as to draw attention to the point that's being made. Last week I referred to it as a sandwich. So we have a story that begins, another story that comes in the middle, and then the first story continues. We have the bread, that's the outside story, and then the inside of the sandwich. You can choose what kind of sandwich you want, but the inside of the sandwich, that's a story we're gonna consider this morning. So before we go inside the sandwich, let me remind you about the bread. Let's remember the story that goes on either side of this morning's passage. Last week we considered the family of Jesus. His family, as they watched his ministry and they heard and saw the things that he did and said, they determined that he was out of his mind. They determined that he needed to be removed from the public eye. So they traveled from where they were in Nazareth to Capernaum where Jesus was with the intent of seizing him, of capturing him, and taking him out of the public eye. But things didn't go as they planned. When when they arrived, as Jesus almost always does, he took charge of the situation, and he used this interaction with his family as an opportunity to teach about who is his true family, those who believe in him. So that was last week. That was the bread of the sandwich. And now as we come to a new story, we see different people but a very similar line of events. This time we have the scribes, religious leaders, and they too have determined that Jesus is out of his mind. Or the way they say it, that he is under the power of Satan. Like his family, the scribes want him removed from the public eye. So they travel from where they are in Jerusalem to where he is in Capernaum to accuse him and to silence him. But what we're gonna see is that once again, Jesus gets the upper hand and Jesus gets the final word. As he speaks to the scribes, he brings up the three things that I've already mentioned. His strength, a warning, and the promise of forgiveness. So that's where we're headed. Hope you'll take your Bibles and follow along as I read. We're in Mark chapter 3, and I will begin reading in verse 22. Hear the word of God. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, He cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So last week, we saw the family of Jesus coming to get him to remove him from the public eye. They were determined he's out of his mind. And now we see another group. Another group that's determined to silence Jesus, and this time it's the scribes, religious leaders, religious teachers, experts in the law of God. And what we see is that this group, we're told that they come down from Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem is the religious capital. It's where many of the scribes were. They come down from Jerusalem to Capernaum to where Jesus is. And what we should recognize is that while we may already have a bad taste in our mouth for the scribes because of the way they're so often described in the Bible, as they come to town, people would notice these were respected men, respected teachers, and people would care what they thought, and they would listen to what they said. And what we're going to see is that they have a very wrong assessment of Jesus. Now, they know who he is. They've heard his teaching. They know and maybe have seen his healing. They know that he's been casting out demons. Recognize this. The scribes have seen the power of Jesus. But this is where they go wrong. They don't ascribe his power to God. They ascribe the power of Jesus to Satan. And this is the message they believe and that they are spreading. That Jesus is possessed by Satan. They're suggesting that the power he has has been given to him by the devil himself. It's a serious charge. And perhaps it's even more serious because these are teachers. These are people of influence who are leading others. And this is what they're telling them. Jesus claims to be from God, but his power is actually demonic. See it there in verse 22. He's possessed by Beelzebub. Now who's that? Let's see how few times I can actually have to say Beelzebub. I'll spare you the long rabbit trail and all the history, but suffice it to say that most likely it's a, a longer form of the name of the false god in the Old Testament, Baal. We've, you've probably heard of, of Baal. And this is a longer form, Beelzebul. Baal was considered to be the highest among all of the false gods, all of the demonic spirits. Baal was the top. And what happened over time is that this name of the head of the demonic spirits, came to be associated with the great enemy of God, Satan. And by the time we get to the, the time of Jesus, it seems that these two are somewhat interchangeable. So the scribes are saying that Jesus is possessed by the, the prince of demons. And the reason he could cast out demons is because he was controlled by the chief demon, the greatest of all demons. This was their assessment. This is the message that they were spreading. And if we have any chance of understanding this passage, of understanding the unforgivable sin, then we need to understand what they're suggesting and the seriousness of their assessment. Let's start here. First, they are not denying what Jesus has done. They are admitting he is able to heal people. They are acknowledging he has the power to cast out demons. Don't miss this. They have seen his power. They have knowledge of what Jesus can do. They have witnessed his authority over evil. But instead of recognizing his authority and recognizing that it is of God, they see his power, they see his authority, and they attribute it to Satan. I just want you to think about this, church. Here are men who have committed their lives to the study of the law of God religious leaders. Now, God himself in flesh is standing before them and not only standing there, but healing people, casting out demons, speaking in a way that no one has ever heard. And as they see this, they don't recognize it as the power of God. Instead, they see and assess that this power is of Satan. What we see is that they have seen yet they are blind. Their hearts are hard. They see the evidence, but they don't believe, and they give credit to Satan for only things that God can do. It's a serious charge, and Jesus is going to respond with a significant warning. But first, before he warns them, he takes a minute to, to point out the fallacy of their logic, that what they're saying simply doesn't make sense. And he says this using two different parables. We see the first one there in verse 23. He called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. The argument that he's making, it's, it's relatively straightforward. A large part of his ministry up to this point has been demonstrating his power over evil. And we've talked about this, how there was a, a unique presence of demonic force during the time of Jesus' ministry. Never did we see it before, and never have we seen it since, the amount of demonic activity during the ministry of Jesus. Satan, seeing God in flesh on the earth, came out in full force. Jesus has come bringing the kingdom of God. And now it seems Satan does all that he can to oppose that work. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's encountering people possessed by demons. And we've considered, as we've gone through the first three chapters of Mark, how Jesus responds. He silences them. He casts them out. He prevents them from continuing their work of deceiving people. And this is the basis of the argument Jesus is making. I have been working against demonic forces. Why would Satan oppose himself? The demons are his agents. They are his army. Why would Satan attack and destroy his own? It doesn't make sense. That's the point Jesus is making. He says it plainly first, and then he describes it in a couple different ways. He says in verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Pretty easy to understand the logic there. If a nation is fighting against itself, ultimately it will not survive. It's true for a nation. It's true for a household. Of course, what we see in verse 25 is that Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln, his famous house divided speech. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Man, humor is so hard in an empty room. But we know Jesus said it first, right? Jesus wasn't quoting Lincoln. But most Americans probably know this phrase, this line, not as the words of Christ, but as the words of Abraham Lincoln. And it's actually kind of helpful to us because if we understand Lincoln's situation, it proves the point that Jesus is making. Maybe you remember your American history. Maybe you remember the point of Lincoln's speech. The United States was divided on the issue of slavery and was moving quickly towards civil war. Within a short time, our country would literally start attacking itself. Lincoln saw what was coming. He knew the issue had to be resolved, that a country that was divided would not remain. So in an effort to fight for resolution, to fight for unity, he began this significant speech with these words, the words of Christ. A house divided against itself cannot stand. He went on to say, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. So there's your history lesson. But hopefully also a helpful illustration of the point that Jesus is making. As a nation, we never would have survived if that conflict had continued. The scribes are claiming that Jesus is possessed by the power of Satan and attacking his own. It says in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If this is what's happening, then Satan eventually will destroy himself. So Jesus begins by making the clear assertion that what they're suggesting is just not logically allowed. His power doesn't come from Satan, and in fact, quite the opposite. Jesus has come bringing the kingdom and the forces of God against evil. God will destroy the works of Satan. Jesus has come to take back what Satan has claimed. And that's the point we see in verse 27 in the, the second parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Really great imagery. And the point that Jesus is making is important. He refers to Satan as a strong man. And for a time, Satan does have a measure of power on earth. He's deceiving the hearts of people and he's sending out demons to do his work. But now Jesus has come 
entered into the strong man's house to take back what belongs to him. Think about that. Jesus coming to take back what is his. But notice what must happen first. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Listen to that. He's come to take back what is his, but first he must take captive the one who is, who is wreaking havoc. No one can go into a strong man's house and carry off his stuff until he first binds him. Jesus is binding Satan and plundering his house. A strong man is bound by a stronger man. It's an incredible image of the power and strength of Christ. And remember the context. Here are the scribes suggesting that when Jesus is casting out demons, he's showing the power of Satan. No, he's not showing the power of Satan. He's showing that he has power over Satan. Satan may be the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger one, and it is not even close. Satan does not stand a chance. At this point, Jesus has come, and he's beginning to plunder Satan's possessions, casting out demons and rescuing people from darkness. Of course, we know at the cross, Jesus will deal that decisive blow. And at his return, he will claim his victory once and for all. I told you at the beginning, we we're going to see three things. You're wondering when those are going to begin right now. What we've been seeing is the strength of Jesus. I think this is something we probably don't emphasize enough. The victory of Jesus over Satan. The scriptures are clear that Satan has a measure of influence even now. But he has already been defeated and his time is short. And here's something I want to mention because maybe you've thought about this incorrectly yourself. I think a lot of times people speak of God and Satan as if they are true rivals. As if it's an even fight that could go either way. Church, let me remind you, Satan has never been a threat to God. He's never been a threat to the plan of God. God has always been the one with the power. He has always been the one in control. And Satan's doom has always been sure. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3. That declaration of God. That a day would come when he would crush the serpent's head. Satan's defeat has always been sure. And when Jesus came, he started the process of bringing the kingdom of darkness to an end once and for all. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus is the stronger one. So strong that he can see, simply speak and demons have to flee. Consider the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore... Children share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He came and lived among us. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It really summarizes everything that we've said up to this point. Jesus came. And when he came and when he died... He's destroying the works of the devil and setting free all those who are in him. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is something I hope that you will remember as we go on from this morning that Jesus is the stronger one, and that Jesus will be victorious. And it can be easy, as we live in this world where evil abounds, to feel like evil is getting the upper hand. Rest assured, church, his time is short. His end is sure. Of course, what this means for those of us who are in Christ is we don't have to fear. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. We can rest assured that we've been brought safely into the kingdom of God. So we come back to our context. 
What Jesus is driving home is that the assertion that he's working under the power of Satan could not be farther from the truth. And then we get this warning. The warning is this, that to make the assertion that they are making, that Jesus is under control of the Satan, is to put oneself in a very dangerous position. So we've seen the strength of Jesus, and now we hear this warning from him. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Like I said in the beginning, it's a passage that has troubled a lot of people. And it's a text that gets debated a lot. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, my guess is that this is a verse that you've probably stopped at and wondered about. Maybe someone has asked you about this passage. It's one of those sayings of Jesus that it's actually recorded three times in the Bible. We see it in Matthew, we see it in Luke, and we see it here in, in Mark. We can't get away from it. We have to know what is Jesus saying here. But I think if we're honest, it makes us uncomfortable. And there's a couple reasons why I think this verse in particular makes us uncomfortable. First is because it startles us as so antithetical to what we believe about the nature of the gospel. Think about verses like Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then there's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. We believe because the Bible is clear that anyone who repents of their sins will be forgiven. And these verses, they don't have asterisks next to them. There's not a footnote that says, you will be forgiven unless, unless you've committed that one sin, that one that won't be forgiven. No, the promises of Scripture are clear. But now we read the words of Jesus and they seem equally clear. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He's guilty of an eternal sin. What do we do with this? Is there an unpardonable sin? And by all means, if there is, how do I know if I've committed it or not? Important questions. They require careful answers. So here's what we're going to do. First, I want to look at the context and make sure we understand exactly what's going on because this verse is not void of context. There's context here. Second, I want to give you some assurance because I believe that because of the nature of this sin, if you are fearful that you have committed it, that is probably a sign that you have not. And so we don't have to be afraid. So to a certain extent, I want to calm any fears you may have surrounding this verse. But then I want to pivot and warn you. This is a a passage of warning. And so I do want to encourage us towards a measure of caution. There is a warning here that needs to be heard. So context, assurance, and warning, and hopefully it won't take as long as you may think it's going to. I'll do my best. First, let's define a term. What's blasphemy? Well, simply defined, blasphemy means to slander or to be irreverent or defiant. So we could be blasphemous towards another person, but usually when we use this word today, we use it in reference to God. We blaspheme God when we slander him or speak of him without reverence. Now, if we just stop there, I think we would all admit there's reason for concern. Because many of us, if not all of us, are guilty of a moment of anger or frustration where we have spoke of God without reverence, maybe even slandered his name. And let me be clear on this. That is a sin, and it is something that you should quickly repent of. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Jesus isn't talking about an irreverent statement made in anger. And we know that in part because of verse 28. He starts off with this very definitive, truly I say to you. By the way, no one else in the Bible ever uses this word. Jesus uses it a lot, truly, truly. It's like saying amen at the beginning of the statement. This is true. 
all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. So here we see blasphemy that is forgivable, which means Jesus is talking about something more specific. That's where we come to verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, so a little clarification there. Now we know it's blasphemy or slander against the Holy Spirit specifically. But we still know precisely what that means. Thankfully, Mark gives us another verse, verse 30. The scribes were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this is the reason for the warning. And the reason for the warning helps us understand the meaning of the warning. It's related to what the scribes were doing. So what were they doing? Well, so we know the scribes are men who had the word of God, claimed to speak on behalf of God. They have seen Jesus. They have witnessed his power. They have seen his miracles. They have watched him cast out demons. They aren't people who simply don't believe. They aren't simply dismissing Jesus. They are men who have seen him clearly. They have seen his power. And not only do they deny it, but they give that power and they, they, they claim it for Satan. Scribes are looking at Jesus, having witnessed his power, and suggesting that the work of Jesus is not the power of the Spirit, but instead it's the power of Satan. So you see how specific we're getting here. They're saying that what the Spirit of God does, he has not done. But in fact, what the Spirit of God does has actually been done by Satan. So that's what we see in the context. Jesus is warning them about a very serious, but a very specific sin. Based on that, I want to give you part of my definition. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to see and witness the power of God in Christ in its fullness and yet willingly choose to attribute that power to Satan. Hopefully you see how specific that is. To see Jesus fully, to recognize his power, and to willingly choose to attribute that power to Satan. Now let me expand that a little bit because I don't think this is one single act. We see there in verse 30, they were saying, which is a unique verb, it's they kept on or they were continually saying. They did not stop in suggesting that he was doing the work of Satan. It seems to be an ongoing state of heart and mind. That it's not just a one-time act but it's a, a commitment of the heart to this way of thinking. I think that we do have some contextual evidence of this, but I think we can also go to the rest of Scripture and, and fill out to this line of thinking. Because see, Jesus says that those who blaspheme the Spirit will never be forgiven. His words seem clear. Never forgiven, eternal sin. But let's go back again to the passages we've already considered that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, no asterisks. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, no footnotes. How do we reconcile these? The never of Jesus' words and the every and all of the other verses. Let me say this. I believe there is an eternal sin. Jesus says there are those who will never have forgiveness. It's a specific sin. It's attributing the power of God to Satan. And it must be an ongoing, settled state of the heart because other parts of the Bible are clear that those who repent will be forgiven. So what makes this sin different? What makes this an eternal sin? I don't believe that Jesus is referring here to the willingness or the ability of God to forgive, but to the inability of the sinner to repent. That's, that's a, key, a key sentence. Let me say it again. It's not an unwillingness or inability of God to forgive, but the inability and unwillingness of the sinner to repent. Which is to say that those who commit this sin have entered into a settled and determined state of heart in which they refuse to acknowledge the work of the Spirit and they never come to a place of repentance. And since they never come to a place of repentance, repentance, they will never be forgiven. 
It is an eternal sin. And this is where I want to give you some assurance before we return to the warning. It seems clear from the whole of Scripture that anyone who comes to God with a truly repentant heart will be forgiven. So if you're fearful that you have committed this sin against the Holy Spirit, but you have a heart of repentance, then I believe you can be assured that you have, in fact, not committed this sin. To to commit this sin is to enter into a way of life from which you will never repent. But if you think that you have started down that road and you're hearing this warning of Christ, this is my plea to you. Confess your sin. Trust in Jesus. Repent and believe that he will be faithful to forgive you. This is why Jesus came. He came to defeat evil. He came to make a way of salvation. And all who repent and believe in him will be saved. So repent. Live in the freedom and joy of the forgiveness of God that has been accomplished through Christ. Now, Part of my reason for giving you that assurance is because I know human nature, I know some of you well, you have sensitive consciences and I'm glad for that. And so I wanna be clear and assure you that if you are willing to repent, then I don't believe that you've committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For you, forgiveness is still available because you have a heart of repentance. I would also say that anyone who's a Christian is unable to commit this sin because you've already been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So have some assurance. But I also think that when we we read a passage of the Bible, it's incumbent on us to maintain the spirit of the text. The spirit of this text is the spirit of warning. So I would not be doing you any service to assure us all that we are safe without making the warning that Christ has made. Don't miss the warning. It is clear that there will be some who will come to a point where they will silence the work of the Spirit and reject Him. Jesus is telling us there will be a point in some lives whose hearts, they will come to a place where their heart has been permanently hardened. There's a serious consequence to unrepented sin. And I don't want to be guilty of not issuing the warning that Jesus has placed before us. That those who see the power of Jesus and refuse to acknowledge him, those who continue to persist in attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan, are guilty of an eternal sin. What we see here is that this sin is committed. Notice this. This is really important. That this sin is committed by those who know and believe or excuse me, know and have seen the power of Jesus. It doesn't seem that this is a sin that is committed by those who have never truly seen Jesus, but that this is a sin of those who have seen him, who have recognized his power, and then attributed it to Satan. Now, I'm hesitant to do this because I don't want to add one hard text on top of another, But here we go. I think Hebrews chapter six says something very similar to what Jesus says here. Consider Hebrews six, starting in verse four. It says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And he gives an illustration. For the land that is drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end it is burned. Now, we can't fully unpack that, but except to say that what both Jesus is talking about and the writers of Hebrews is talking about is someone who has been close, who has seen, and who has heard, and yet through their persistent sin, never comes to a place of repentance. 
And I think this is an important warning for those of us who week after week sit under the hearing the word of God. This is an important warning that we could listen and recognize the power of God and walk away. So I would plead with you to hear the warning of Christ and the warning of the book of Hebrews and a warning that is throughout the New Testament that to hear and not to respond is to assure your fate in eternity, separated from God. This is the message that to reject Jesus has eternal consequences. And of course, this is the message that we are called to proclaim. That anyone who does not believe will be condemned, but all who believe will be saved and will not face condemnation. It's the message that we must proclaim. Sin leads to death. Repentance and faith leads to life. Oh, I told you there was gonna be three things. You're looking at your, your clock. We've already covered them mostly. We've seen the strength of Jesus, the surety of his victory over Satan. We've heard the warning of Jesus. And lastly, we'll consider the forgiveness of Jesus. I say confidently, and I don't think there's any contradiction with this against the warning of Jesus. We have been warned that there is a state of sin that will lead us to a place where we are unwilling to repent. But this remains blessedly true, that all who repent of their sins will be forgiven. We see this in part in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is something that Jesus has said on his way to the warning that we should not overlook. Forgiveness is withheld from those who have committed their, their ways to this life of sin and have become unable to repent. But all who repent will be forgiven. And also remember this. We could walk away from this morning thinking, whoo, I've not committed that sin. But let us not forget that we are all sinners. And our sin has brought us guilt and that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are saved. You are not saved because you have not committed that sin. You are saved only by the work of Jesus. If we repent of our sins, we are faithful. He is faithful to forgive us. So I hope we will leave with a greater appreciation for the seriousness of sin and a desire to flee from sin, knowing that persistent sin could harden our hearts. But also, we should leave remembering the freedom that we have in Christ. This is why he came. The stronger man to defeat the strong man, and the one through whom we can be assured of our salvation. You don't have to live in guilt and shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. And wouldn't that have been a great conclusion? But there's one more thing we still need to do. We started building the sandwich. Let's at least see it through. We saw both last week and this week those who did not believe in Jesus. We have seen their denial of him, their desire to silence him. Last week we saw the, the family of Jesus want to seize and to bind Jesus, but this morning we have seen that Jesus will not be bound. Last week we saw that those who did not believe were separated from Christ. But those who believed were called his family, mother, sister, and brother. So many parallels. I'll try to put it together in one statement. Jesus is the one with all power and all authority. And while many will oppose him, Jesus will be victorious. And all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins and will be called the family of God. So church, hear the warning and the promises of Jesus. Sin is serious. Our hearts are deceitful. Be vigilant. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But also rest. Rest in knowing that if you are in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and your eternity is secure. 
Church, I hope this is the gospel that we cling to each day. I pray that it would strengthen us in our weakness, humble us when we're proud, and may it be the message that we boldly proclaim to all who need to hear. Would you join me in prayer? God, I come to you on behalf of brothers and sisters asking you to imprint these truths on our hearts, the seriousness of our sin and the penalty we deserve, and also the surety of your victory and your promise of forgiveness to all who will repent. And I thank you for the reminders of your power over Satan and that his doom is sure. And I thank you that even now you are in the process of destroying his works and freeing people from his deceit. I thank you for these things. I also come to you asking that you would not let us take lightly the warnings that we have heard. Would you make us ever aware of our hearts and our propensity to wander? And God, if there are any among us who have not yet believed, who are living in a state of unrepentance, I ask that you would use your word that has been preached to open their eyes and their hearts to turn to you. Would you make us a people who fear the deceitfulness of sin, but also trust your salvation? Thank you for your church. I ask that you would continue to unite us in faith and in love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, would you hear this benediction from the end of Jude? It's a good promise after hearing that warning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Church, I, I love you, and I will look forward to being back together with you very soon.